everybody. I am Dave Sandell. And I'm Caleb Gardner. This is the Best Album 4 podcast, a podcast where we talk about the best album for taking a time warp to 1966. As one does. Yeah, as one does. Uh, we've been super <laughs> serious the last couple of weeks. And so uh, we're going to go all the way to the other side and do something whimsical. Uh, yeah. This is sort of a... We're going to present you with a Back to the Future situation where we're not just picking our best album from 1966, but we're picking our best album for if we were transported to the year 1966, what album would we most would we be most excited about being uh, around for either for the yeah. hype or the concerts or however we're going to take it? I, I think, you know, we'll have to figure out our criteria here, but uh, we have some thoughts <laughs> on a year that happened well before either of us were born, <laughs> I had a, a classmate in high school who once said, why do I need to learn history before the year I was born? Why does it matter? And I disagree with that sentiment, <laughs> but I also found <laughs> yeah. myself as I was going through and learning about 1966, thinking like, <laughs> there is no situation where I'm going to be able to present myself as if I know what it was like to live in 1966. I can tell you about things that happened in 1966, uh, but who knows what it was actually like. But we're just going to pretend uh, that we got into our DeLoreans and went back to 1966. <laughs> I feel like, you know how, like, sometimes you do some things that are, like, fan service, you know, or just to make, mm -hmm. like, fans happy? I feel like this episode is host service. I'm just going to be honest. Like, this is just <laughs> me and you being, like, how do we twist this subject matter so that we can talk about <laughs> what we want to talk about? <laughs> I thought that's probably so, that's probably fair. I will yeah. say picking 1966 is not necessarily a year that's like it's not like my favorite album came out in 1966. So That's true. That's it was fair. fun kind of going through all the albums that really were released this year and, and thinking about the context that they were released into. So yeah. <laughs> So well, I'm excited well, to talk about some stuff here. Let's give people context. What happened in 1966? Yeah. So like even before the music, like what was happening this year? Yeah, so there's a few things to kind of set the stage. So of course Kennedy is killed in 63. Uh yep. the Civil Rights Act is passed in 64, but it leads to significant violence and, and other backlash throughout the country and ripple effects, ripple effects throughout the country. And so that's mm -hmm. sort of the 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 place that we're at as a country in that moment. Um the Vietnam protests are continuing. There's an expansion of a major expansion of troops being sent to Vietnam. I think Johnson sends like 350,000 troops, some crazy number, um, yeah. over to Vietnam. Uh, it's also a year filled with things that we now experience as like kind of uh, maybe a little twee and, and, and or just nostalgic, like Star Trek comes out in 66, Batman, wow. the, the TV show with, uh, with what's his name? Adam. Uh, Adam West. Adam West. Comes out in 1966. It's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Comes out in 1966. So I feel oh, like all these things, are like my understanding of 1966, is all based on the reruns I was watching as a kid <laughs> that were released around that time. I think the most important thing that happened that year was that Reagan entered politics uh, because that creates the trickle effect of everything that's happening now. Yeah. Reagan trickled down into our politics in uh, 1966. It's funny thinking about if I could go back like quantum leap style and change one thing. <laughs> it, it might be if we just nudge Reagan out of politics. Like maybe that's what we do. We just like whisper in his ear like, hey, this is going to be really hard. Don't do this. 
Yeah, you're going to get <laughs> old and senile and everybody's going to watch. And it's gonna Isn't suck acting you. fun? Let's just talk about how great acting is. Oh, maybe we have yeah. to go back and like get him a really amazing movie. No, oh, let's yeah. revitalize his get acting him, career. Get him a really great part. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, yeah, big year. What is your sort of understanding of 1966? Is there anything that I left out that you're like, well, hey, this was also deeply important to how I no, understood I mean, this I, moment in time? I, just off the top of my head, you know, I'm imagining, imagining people listening to the music that we are listening to. I can't think of the 60s without thinking about the music. It's like the first yeah, thing that I think about, sure. you know, because it was just so foundational. Um, but then I'm imagining. Me. I don't know why. Yeah, totally. I'm imagining anti-war, anti-Vietnam protests. I'm imagining civil rights protests. Um, so we're we're a few years from King being assassinated in 1968. So like he's kind of like a lot of the civil rights protests and civil rights movement is already happening. I think he may be even like switching his message to be anti-poverty. So like, but we're still like in the mix of all of that. So it just feels like a very tumultuous time. Like, I don't know, like mm-hmm. the, the entire 60s, is so culturally ingrained, I think, in our national consciousness and was such a like turning point for our political conversation and our like our even, you know, reflection on America, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think the Vietnam anti-Vietnam war protests were a big part of that, but just our like understanding of um, you know, kind of toxic nationalism, I think became a really big part of the conversation in in the sixties. Um so like culturally, it just feels so, so important. And I think the music drove a lot of that. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. I feel like that's a different thing that happens now where, uh, you know, I, I still experience music as being kind of omnipresent in culture, but I no longer experience it as a driving force in culture the way that mm. it was, you know, even when we were kids, I felt like music was driving culture. And even in the, in the early 2000s. Um, so that is a, a major difference now. It doesn't feel, I mean, maybe if Taylor Swift came out with like a yeah. deep protest You or say this in a year know? where like Taylor Swift single-handedly saved the economy, so. Well, <laughs> well that's right. I mean, that's fair. And also, I, as we're going to discuss with our friend Sydney in a couple weeks, I don't know how much she's using her powers for good. <laughs> so I, I wonder why that is, like just a quick reflection on that. So like the 60s may be the first time where with the exception of like Elvis in the fifties, maybe it was really the fifties um, where music musicians became so big that they became kind of a cultural force. But like, I feel like they were still seen as artists. Hmm. Do you still feel like Taylor Swift is seen? Taylor Swift is seen as an artist, but she's like a powerhouse cultural, like economic force. And the reason why I bring this up is because the reason why the arts in general are so culturally significant and such a driver of kind of um, like culture change is because they, with, there's like a famous saying, famous, it's from one movie I remember, V for Vendetta, where he talks about like how our artists um, use lies to tell the truth and politicians use the truth to tell lies. Like I kind of, um, I think of artists as like that where it's like we are, we are the ones who take a step back and reflect on culture and show you what's good and bad about it. And I don't know that we have, I feel like the, the, the music industry now has like starts and fits about that, but it's, but it's like so noisy. I don't know. I'm trying to like figure out, like put my hand on 
why doesn't that feel like the case today? And the only thing I can think about is like, with like Kendrick does that here and there. Like there's artists that do that here and there that have the kind of like cultural cachet to break through. Kendrick Beyonce is another one that comes to mind. But most of them that like can get through the noise of this really long tail of the music industry now just can't like break through except in some like small countercultural circles. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I mean, I think at, at their best musicians can be prophets and artists can be prophets and they can speak mm. to a culture, you know, and, and move a culture in a way that is very unique and, and, and powerful. But I also think money is a motherfucker. <laughs> like once you don't, you put that much money on the table for somebody there are, and not just for that individual person, but there are so many people whose livelihoods are now at stake uh, and, oh, yeah. and things are so poured over, you know, like you know, with one with one bad move, you know, somebody can be quote unquote canceled. I don't totally mm. buy into cancel culture. I think it's more of a consequence culture. But, you know, with one false move, somebody can be canceled or with one false move, you know, millions and millions of dollars can be lost. And, and I think that there's so much wealth concentrated in so few people that that's a lot different than in the sixties. Like the Beatles, I'm sure we're all making gobs and gobs of money. But when you look at somebody like, I don't know, even like I, I could be way off about this, but when I think about Bob Dylan or I think about, you know, Brian Wilson, I don't first think of them as intensely wealthy people. And, mm-hmm. and, and probably they, they were, um, you know, Simon and Garfunkel or whoever. I don't, I don't, first think of them as intensely wealthy people the way that I do with Beyonce or I do with Taylor Swift, right? you know, you know, Phoebe Bridgers, whoever, even you know, people that I love like Phoebe, you know, like they are now intensely wealthy and there is a whole ecosystem now built around them that is popped up by, by what they're putting out there. And so that's interesting. I think that, I think, you know, our sort of weird, it, we supposedly don't live in a monoculture anymore, but I think we, sort of do now in, in like a really unique way, which is that nothing breaks through. So when something does, it's like, you know, it really breaks through. Like Taylor Swift is, is weirdly massive. Like, I don't know, you know, even when I think about the most popular artists from our childhood, I don't know if any of them reach levels that Taylor Swift, where people are following her every move, you know, where Michael every Jackson, album, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Every, every song is saying something about her, her celebrity life, you know, or like every, yeah. You know, every day she has people following her and, and making judgments about her. You're right, Michael Jackson, maybe Whitney Houston, people like that. So I think that there's a different um, financial equation for like the most popular artists now that is unfortunate. Um, it's, yeah. it's cool that people like kind of like are still golden handcuffs, basically. I think so. I mean, I, I could be way off base about that, but that's sort of my initial read is uh, the reason that or the way people use their, their, their celebrity or their power or their, and that's not unique to now. I mean, that started shifting much earlier than now, but so when I think about artists, you know, like Marvin Gaye or, or Tina Turner or people who were, who were hugely popular, they started using their, their, you know, their, their popularity and their celebrity for attempting to change culture in some significant way. Even the Beatles, you know, who, who I, I don't know how deep, I find much of their music, like we're going to get into the Beatles in a big way today. I love the Beatles, but I don't know that I like think about them the same way I think about Bob Dylan as far as like the depth of their lyrics, but they were clearly, they had things that they cared about and they were using their celebrity to move those things forward. George Harrison, especially, you know, we're using their celebrity to move those things forward in a way that I don't think people do very often now. 
Well, I mean, uh, we we can circle back to this year, but I know when they came out with Revolution, which I think was sixty eight or sixty nine, mm. right? Like it was actually, mm. it was actually almost a statement about like stop asking us to be culture change warriors. Yeah, you know, like it was like people. I remember seeing a video where where Lennon was reflecting on that song, and he's basically talking about how. Um, you know, people kept asking, like, when are you going to step up? When are you going to say something about X? And when are you going to say something about Y? And, you know, if you listen to the lyrics of revolutions, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You know, like, it's basically like, <laughs> like, calm down. <laughs> like, it's not it's kind of an anti anti revolution song almost, you know? Um, anyway, I, I think what we're saying is, if I can put my finger on it is like, the 60s may be the first time where protest music was popular. You know, like if you think about like there's always been, you know, especially like tra like people who are underground writing really meaningful, moving things. I'm even thinking about like um, Billie Holiday, you know, and Strange Fruit, like you're talking about mm. um, like it's been there's been protest music. But the 60s feel like the first time people who were writing protest music actually had like really broad, broad cultural influence. Well, and another way of saying that might be the first time that white people were like super interested in it and, and purchasing uh, it and point. spending money on it. Because I, my yep. understanding is that, you know, music in the black community for, for many decades before this, uh, what was popular and what was sought after was yeah. protest music or, or a version of that, you know. Uh, yeah, but you're right. I think that there's something else that happens in the '60s where this music captures the imagination of the majority class, um, yeah. and that's meaningful. I think that a lot of things were shifted in culture because of that. Totally. When you thought about picking your your album, uh, what types of things were you imagining? Like, if you literally were in the DeLorean back in 1966, and, and you got to like kind of emerge from your vehicle right in the middle of an album release or right in the middle of a cultural moment. Uh, what, what were the important things? Like, what did you find yourself like looking forward to experiencing in 1966? Oh my God. That's such a good question. And I don't, I don't honestly know. Like I get what city am I in? Maybe we could start there. Like, am I, am I in San Francisco? Am I near Haight-Ashbury? Am I in New mm. York? Like that probably would make a big difference, right? To what, what I would seek out. I think I would definitely, I would have to at least experience a little bit of hippie culture. You got to yeah. like, you just got to experience it in a little bit in real time, both for yeah. like a, wow, I want to see what's good about this. And they like, oh, you precious people, you know, like it's just <laughs> and a little bit about like just seeing where it's going to go and being a little I, sad on their behalf. I don't know. One of my favorite, uh, there was a, I don't know if it was Newport or I, I don't know where this was recorded. I'll have to go back and find it. Uh, there was a YouTube video of Jimi Hendrix playing at, at some festival, and there's just you know a field of hippies watching him, and uh, it's really fascinating, like people watching in that video. Like you know, it's hard not to just keep your eyes on Jimmy, but when you've watched it so many times, you eventually start looking at the other people in it, and you know, it's just a lot of like clearly very stoned people like grooving <laughs> with him, and there's something like very the draw uh, something about that that I'm really drawn to. I don't know that I would have gone back in the '60s and you know, use drugs and all these other things. But uh, I think I still would have been myself <laughs> in the 60s. Yeah. But it would have been cool to just like be in that in that mix for a minute. Totally. 
Before we get into our chosen albums that we really wanted to uh, highlight to experience 1966, what else was on the music landscape? Like, what what was the music landscape of 1966? I'll throw out a couple that I know came out that year. I mean, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, wild, that that was 1966. Have you spent a lot of time with with Pet Sounds? I've spent a lot of time listening to Pet Sounds. A fair amount, yeah. I'm just curious if you have as well. Do you experience it as revolutionary? Hmm. Oh, revolutionary. I don't know. Good, good question. It's so hard because I think the competition for revolutionary in 1960, in 1960s is so wild that like, that's one of those things where it feels like in the moment it might've sounded revolutionary. And now it sounds so like, I don't know, class, at least classic, if not tired. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I get that. I, I think if it's, I think it's a lot like when I first saw Die Hard, for some reason I didn't see Die Hard until I was an adult. And yeah. I I don't know how I didn't watch it as a kid, but I just never did. And by that point, I had seen so many action movies that had like aped Die Hard <laughs> that yes. it just wasn't like, okay, like, okay, that was an okay movie. Like, I don't, I don't get the hype though. I could see that. I when you, that. you know, kind of think back to the moment it was released and, and all doing, doing all these things for the first time, you know, then you can yeah. kind of understand how people really ate this up. And, and of course, every, every movie uses it as a template. I will say that as I've revisited Die Hard, I've enjoyed it more. And that's the same with Pet Sounds. Like when I first listened to Pet Sounds, it was probably because it was brought up a lot with like Smashing Pumpkins and My Bloody Valentine as like these walls of sound. And I yeah. definitely hear that in the mix. Like I, you know, this 100%. is clearly a revolutionary album. Uh, it's just that when I listened to it, you know, for the first time in like whatever it was, the early 2000s, um, I I didn't necessarily get it. <laughs> and I think I've spent a lot of my life trying to get that sounds on like a, a different level than I, I appreciate it and admire it. And I don't think I'm ever going to actually get it. Uh, but there's a lot, like when you just sit with your headphones, like on a bed and listen to pet sounds, there's a lot going on in that mix and it's cool. Like it's a really cool record. God only knows what I'd be without you. That's actually a really good point to like talking about how people experienced music in 1966. Like I actually, I think that that is the most fascinating thing to me to think about like maybe why music became so revolutionary is that there really there was no like carrying around an iphone and an ipod and listening to music while doing other right. things in 1966 right. right it's like you either put it you put the record on in the in the living room and everybody listens to it or you you know you plug it into your headphones and listen to the record in your room and i would imagine a lot of the people listening to what we're going to talk about today listening to the beach boys and pet sounds we're doing that. We're it do, it, exactly what you just talked about. Like, I'm going to put on pet sounds. I'm going to put my put on my headphones. And I'm just going to absorb this. And yeah, in that have... context, that feels revolutionary, right? Like, it probably did feel yeah. so different and so atmospheric and so like, what is this loveliness I'm listening to? You know, hmm. one of the things I don't have a, a real sense of is what the radio was like in the '60s. Mm. Like, were radio stations playing these songs, or were these songs too? you know, countercultural to make it onto the radio. How were people discovering some of this music? I mean, the beat, the Beatles deciding to transform from who they were in the fifties to who they become in the sixties. Obviously they just have millions of people to go along with them. And so that's how, that's why they're so influential. Like that's yeah. why, I mean, that's my understanding. Like it's but true they that start, their music. They didn't start that way. It started very much by heavy radio right. play. 
Right. Yeah. And I, it was, my it sense was very was, like pop songs, essentially. Yeah. yeah, exactly. My sense was like Ed Sullivan for the like, you know, the playing on on mm-hmm. live stage to, for millions of people. And then the and then the radio and then, you know, obviously you'd buy the record like those were the those were the ways you experienced it. Yeah. Not a lot of not a lot of uh, long tail indie bands making uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of things for in this right. in this uh, day and age. I wonder, you know, another album from that year is Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. In the empty lot where the ladies be. Blind man's bluff with the keychain. Which is largely considered one of the 10, 20 greatest records ever made. Uh, I am real cold on Bob Dylan. I, I feel like he is one of my main blind spots. And like my music nerdery, I, I don't get it on the level that other people get it. I certainly, again, appreciate Bob Dylan. Uh, I'm not here to like say anything negative about Bob Dylan. And when I listen to those records, I think because I just folk rock isn't my or folk music isn't my, my jam. Um, I sometimes find myself thinking like I would have to listen to this a lot to really absorb these lyrics. So people, you know, did that. Like people just listen to these records over and over again. I'm assuming it was expensive to buy a record. You didn't have very many yeah. of them. Um, but I think about something like Blonde and Blonde. How do people discover that music? How do people like? I mean, at that point, Bob Dylan is a major artist. But how do people discover say, Bob Dylan in the first place? Is it was a question I've always had. Yeah, by the time Blonde and Blonde came out, Dylan was like pretty, pretty popular, right? Yeah. Who? who how, where are you with Dylan? I'm kind of the same as you. It's really surprising <laughs> to me that we're both in this camp. Yeah. But <laughs> I just I. I respect Dylan as an artist. I understand that people love him and I have never been able to sit with Dylan for very long. It's like a combination of his voice. <laughs> just it's yeah, so sure. it's so unique, but I find it so hard to like listen to for a long period of time and like really engage with. And his songs are like kind of folks folky and rambly. So it's like it, in yeah. a way that emphasizes the voice is kind of the main thing and i'm like in this yeah. you know what i mean yeah. i'm like in this context maybe the voice shouldn't be the main thing it's telling to me that it, that i the more electric he gets the more i like like when i listen to the hurricane yeah, right. you know i i can listen to the hurricane all day uh but then when he go when i hang out with the more folk rock stuff he loses me a yeah bit. similar yeah i just yeah he he's one of those artists that like I want to love, and obviously I appreciate his his lyricism, appreciate his artistry, appreciate his cultural influence, but have never been able to fully like, yeah, find a find a path in. And just to name it, ninety percent of the artists that we love now would not exist without Dylan. You know, like, I know. I want to like name that. I mean, more than half of the artists that I love deeply influenced by Dylan. It's wild. That's why I like am, am so upset that I have not been able to figure out what, what, it, what it was. But, you know, sometimes things just don't click. Another album that came out this year was uh, The Rolling Stones, Under My Thumb. I mean, this was a huge year for music. I mean, I feel like you could say that about every year in the 60s, but... Where are you, you know, in the Rolling Stones? Are you are yeah, you a Stones you know, fan? <laughs> I was just thinking, I think I owned I owned so many greatest hits records when I was a kid. And it was because, you know, I would send away for, you know, 12 CDs from BMG. Ah, and it was classic. back 
when it was all stickers. Do you remember this? You like licked the stamp or something and you'll put them on yes. there. Maybe there's stickers and you put them on there. So you had You're a like limited amount them, right? to choose from. And so, you know, I had to pick like 10 CDs for a penny or whatever. And I had eight. So then I just had to choose two more from the collection they were offering. And so inevitably I would buy like a Ramones greatest hits or a Bob Dylan greatest hits or Stone's greatest hits. And so I owned all these records that were just like greatest hits of these artists. And I never, I just never had an opportunity because my parents weren't into the Stones and I didn't have any friends who were. I never had an opportunity to spend much time with their albums. And unlike the Beatles and even unlike Dylan and unlike some of these other artists, I just never, I just never bothered. I, I listened to Exile on Main Street because everybody makes you listen to Exile on Main Street and it's amazing. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I can't say for sure I've ever listened to Under My Thumb start to finish. That being said, as a singles band, the Rolling Stones are they're the greatest, you know, that's, I just don't yeah. know if I'm ever going to like be a guy who I'll never pick the stones over the Beatles largely because I've spent time listening to every Beatles record and I have not done the same for the stones. And I don't know what's stopping me other than, I don't know. They just kind of sounds a little samey after a while. I, I'm less interested in what they were doing. Um, you know, I certainly appreciate the roots of their music, probably more than what they were doing. Like they were, they were appropriating a lot of black music That's into their sound. True. And I, I love all the stuff that they were appropriating. <laughs> and so, but I just rather go back and listen to that stuff. I'd rather go back yeah, and listen right. to the, you know, the blues and, and gospel records that they were influenced by um, or stealing from uh, than, than go listen to the stones. <laughs> I'm assuming you're also not a stones guy. Cause we seem to I be just, on the same page about a lot of this I, stuff. I know. I, I, I think they've always been a singles band for me. You know, like there's some of their mm-hmm. singles that some of the, you know, especially the more popular ones I I love. I will sing along with whenever it comes on. Mm-hmm. It's just they're iconic. But never, never really felt like never even to your point, even really felt the need to listen to an album. I, I just. The appropriation thing, of course, but also just like I've never in my head, somebody somebody who's a Stones fan, correct me on this, but in my head, I've never seen the artistry in terms of like the creating the whole tapestry of an entire album. Like I have with the Mm -hmm. Beatles, you know, like Beatles, especially in the late sixties, like we're going to talk about, put a lot of thought into their entire album and not just being kind of a singles driven band. And I never, never got that sense with the Rolling Stones. I don't know. There didn't feel like a, like eras of, you know, where they really kind of switched their artistry and tried new things. And I don't know. Part of that for me is because when we when I was growing up, at least the Stones were just a huge arena band. Like I, I only yeah, experienced same. them as the most popular band in the world, um, and therefore I would just hear their songs all the time on the radio. Whereas the Beatles weren't touring, you know, like well half half of them were dead, you know, like yeah. the, the Beatles yeah. weren't they weren't around in that same way. And so I feel like by the eighties and the nineties, the Stones had kind of become caricatures of themselves. You know, and, and even even down to like the way that you would draw Mick Jagger and his big lips, you know, like and they use that as their their logo. Like I or, you know, the way that you would think about Keith Richards, I would just imagine all the drugs he was doing and all the people he was sleeping with. You know, like I they were just like archetypes of people. And I never really even approached them as serious musicians, you know, but they would show up in every Martin Scorsese movie. So, you know, I was very familiar with them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Do you think that they're that that? The fact that they've had such a long tail of a career actually makes us look back on their early catalog in a different way. Like, do you feel like 
because they became a big arena band and because they were able to kind of capitalize on their success for so long that it actually makes us underappreciate their early work. I think it makes you and I do that because we were around for when that was happening. So like when I think about you two, they're very similar to the stones except for all of their albums are thoughtful. Not all of most of their albums are very thoughtful and, and you know, the whole, they, they put a lot of thought into the entire album. Um, you know, even songs that I don't necessarily connect with, I can understand why people do. Um, but if you were to look at you two on their face today, I would imagine people experience them the same way I experienced the stones which is this huge arena band who's the biggest band in the world and you just hear singles all the time. So I'm guessing because we first approached them when they were in that phase, I imagine now people approach them more as an album, uh, an album artist. I don't know if the, I don't have any evidence of that, um, huh. but it strikes me that because they don't tour very often anymore and because they've kind of left that phase where they are the most popular band in the world, maybe people yeah. approach their catalogs differently and they always land very high on, on, you know, uh, top 500 record lists or top 500 records lists and records lists before you die. Like they're always on there. Yeah. I just wonder how much um, the, like there's an effect uh, The Cobain is like the most, mm-hmm. obviously like um, one of the most uh, prevalent of this where like someone being kind of cut down in their prime. Yeah. Like kind of it, it, it freezes them in time. You know, and like, if you were never not in your prime, all of a sudden, you were the most amazing artist of all time. And no one can argue with it because you never actually had a chance to not be in your prime. (laughs) Do you know know what I'm saying? Like, Cobain, Hendrix, you know, even even Lennon to some extent, although obviously he was doing his own solo stuff. Like there's just there's an effect of like people who die young, who made amazing work. They just they kind of unintentionally went out in their prime, and now like they are just kind of stuck in that moment of being amazing. I think I don't even think you have to die. I think if you just break up, you know, or you just stop uh, yeah. creating mm-hmm. music. I think about the Talking Heads, or I think about um, you know uh, who's another example of that, um, like the Police or Genesis. You know, like those bands stop making music. And so their catalog is in amber at that point. And so you can approach it as a finished product, even though their lead singers or whoever might continue to make solo records. So the Beatles fit that to me, like they stopped making music and their catalog is therefore finished, you know, and and obviously you can go with all, with all of them through their solo records. Um, But I find those, I find that activity of following them into their solo records to be uh, not required. Like I think people can just approach the Beatles and not worry about Wings and not worry about George Harrison's solo work or, you know, Lennon right. and Yoko Ono, people like that. So, yeah, that's a good point. It's not, it's just about the end. There was an end date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also that like preserves them in the minds of the people who are writing. I mean, this is a big thing, right? People who were very influential writers when we were growing up experienced their catalogs in real time, you know, and, and crystallized them and crystallized their opinion about them and presented them to us as the greatest of all time. That's and I true. Think we are, we are influenced by that more than we realize. I think when I, when I go back and read, I spent a lot of time like reading old collections of um, music commentary, music criticism, and the way people love the Beatles is very different than the way they love the Rolling Stones. And it seems to me directly attributable to 
their opinion about them ended and they just decided this is now my finished opinion as opposed yeah. to they continued to have new thoughts. This happens with Smashing Pumpkins, right? Like Billy Corgan is maybe a joke in a lot of circles now. And if they would have just stopped making music after a door or maybe even, you know, before then, I think that they would have been considered one of the greatest bands of all time. So, right. Imagine if like Melancholy was their last album. Right. Yeah. That would have been wild. Um. Anyway, that. Yeah, we've been spending way too much time just opining <laughs> I mean, well, about why the don't history we do this of music. Quick. Before we jump into our our picks, we just finish this topic. What, did you have any more honorable mentions? I have like two more honorable mentions I just want to throw out there, um, and those are you know Otis Redding is doing amazing work at this point. I just sometimes the the records themselves feel more like collections of music than like a statement. Mm. So I didn't think to choose him, but certainly to be there for Otis Redding. Same with, uh, not same with, but similarly, I can Tina Turner's River Deep, Mountain High. That record goes. Like, that record is <laughs> just phenomenal front to back. No filler, no skips. <laughs> uh, like, go seek out I can Tina Turner's River Deep, Mountain High, and you'll have a great time this afternoon. I had a break of only dogs Last one is this uh, band called the 13th Floor Elevators. Psychedelic sounds of the 13th Floor Elevators. There's a lot of like, psychedelia that's entering into culture at this point. And those records are super cool uh, and, and, and pretty influential um, to what's coming next. So, And I, I also wonder if I would have maybe gotten into Frank Zappa more if I was in the 60s or maybe doing uh-huh. a lot of LSD. Like I find myself... I find myself having a hard time engaging with Frank Zappa, uh, even though when I put his records on, I'm like, oh, I get it. I get how people can get really sucked into this, especially if they're super high. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Probably better if you're super high. You know your mother's going to love you till you don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, those are good honorable mentions. I don't know that I have any more that I knew were definitely 1966. Yeah. Um, but big, big year. I mean, just again, big decade. It's hard to me. Like, there's a lot of the 60s that just kind of blends together in my head where I'm just like, there was so much being made and so much of it was influential. It's just like, I, we talk about the 90s a lot like this, which I think <laughs> has yeah. a similar vibe for us, at least in that way. 60s just feel like every year there's just so much digest. Yeah. And so much of it has been like so, in, so enduring. Well, we've teamed the, we've teased this conversation for a while. So why don't you hit us with your pick for the best album for taking a time warp to 1966? Well, I couldn't think of 1966 without thinking of the Beatles, um, which, you know, are a huge band for me. We're a huge band for a lot of people in the 60s, blah, blah, blah. It almost feels like a little <laughs> <laughs> cliche to pick the Beatles when we talk about the 60s. But I just like, how could you not start there? I mean... And the reason why I this is a particularly influential year that I want to talk about is so the Beatles revolver came out in 1966. That's the one I want to talk about. And it came on the heels of Rubber Soul, another huge album that was, um, you know, both kind of widely critically acclaimed. But this marked the shift from that like singles driven poppy kind of Mm. band to this more experimental 
countercultural, psychedelic, world music influenced band that really started looking at their albums as a whole, you know, piece of art. Um, and I, the revolver, I will just say out loud is probably my favorite album by the Beatles. Um, but it's so hard. I mean, there's so much competition there, but I think in terms of listening to an entire album, revolver is probably the one that I go back to the most. And just, if you're not familiar with revolver, Eleanor Rigby's on there. And your bird can sing yellow submarine, which just is like stuck in the middle. And that song alone felt like such a cultural <laughs> moment, right? It's just, it's a very fun, it's got this like, I don't even know how to like, it's, it's starting to get into this kind of prog rock artsy feel, but it's got that like, it, they haven't lost their like pop spirit yet. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like, Taxman is just like still fun. Let me tell you how it will be. Andrew Bird can sing, which I just talked about, still fun. Yellow Submarine is obviously like at the peak of someone doing some kind of drugs, but still has that like, I'm imagining that Saturday morning cartoon of Yellow Submarine, you know? Like, it's it hard still to, feels it's hard like to they, separate those. Yeah. Right. It still feels like they haven't really lost their innocence yet. It, it, this feels like a transitional moment for me of the Beatles where it's like you can you can tell you can have a complete album. You can tell an entire story or lots of little stories. And then probably in the case of this and have it be beautiful and have it be complete. But also each little thing can still be fun. We can still, you know, again, still maintain a sense of youthful innocence. Um, and I don't know, like I just. This this album means a lot to me, and I feel like it's it's one of my favorites. Two two questions for you: When did you first find yourself getting into the Beatles, and was this one of the first ones you heard, or was, was this later? Like, where was this in your journey through the Beatles catalog? I had a, I mean, I had a winding path into the Beatles in that my parents were very into the Beatles when I was growing up, and I didn't like them. So mm. I like when I was a kid. So imagine. This is like elementary school age. My parents are putting on like a greatest hits Beatles album. And I'm hearing about yellow submarines and octopuses gardens. And I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Maxwell's music? silver hammers. Yeah. I'm like, what are you, what kind of drug induced hippie <laughs> nonsense is this? <laughs> you know? And so like at the very beginning of my Beatles journey was a lot of confusion and a lot of like, why do adults like this so much? And it wasn't really until middle school, I think that some of my peers started being like, you need to reconsider the Beatles and go back to their early stuff that was a lot more accessible, a lot more poppy. Mm. And you'll really get what, you know, what, how this music came to be. And I did that. And started really loving them. So your parents were more into the later stuff. They weren't in as into the early stuff. I think they would put on they. I I can in my head there was like a greatest hits album that was like had a red cover, and there was a greatest yeah. hits album that had a blue cover. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it was like an early like 60s. ones, maybe ones, something like that. So, yeah, something like that. And there was like an early sixties and and a late sixties, and it was basically like on the album cover on the first one in the early sixties. They all had those like short 
but at the very but at the time like still like controversial long hair for boys like haircuts and then the later later one they're all like super long hair facial hair you know like very like late 60s hippie and the music like tracked like the first one it had all those like early kind of poppy um you know fun songs and the second one it had the kind of more trippy psychedelic later Beatles stuff um so they would kind of alternate between the two but the only the only time it really popped for me or caught to me that it was the Beatles it was like the weird stuff and I, so I was like oh Beatles is the Beatles is the weird band got it you know like kid kid logic yeah. now to be funny I see you're talking about. yeah when when um when my kids think about the Beatles Miles always goes yeah, I'm the Beatles. Like he does this, like nasally. He's like, I'm the, I'm the Beatles. I'm gonna wall on my yellow submarine. Like he does. So now they, that's how my kids think about the Beatles. It's like this weird British Your nasally. Your kids are deeply band. problematic. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna get anyway. Canceled. But like Revolver sits between between like in this transitory place between. Like we have we have reached this incredible pop stardom over these like singles and appearances on Ed Sullivan and, mm. you know, like teen teen heart drama and Sergeant Pepper, which comes out in 1967. And to me is really the pinnacle of we are just going to fully embrace our prog rock artsy world music nonsense and create beautiful music from it and not really care if it makes sense. You know, like and string some word salad together in a in a really <laughs> strange and interesting way. Um, and really like put a stake in the ground that this is who we are now. One of the other notable things about Revolver is that um the release coincided with the Beatles' final concert tour. Um, this was around the time where they were really burned out from touring. It was around the time where Lennon made that controversial remark that they had become more popular than Jesus hmm. and we're getting a lot of backlash in the United States from that. And so the kind of combination of that and just like just really having these insane concert tours. I remember seeing this video of the Beatles playing at one point and they couldn't even hear themselves because the screaming yeah. was so loud and they're somehow like <laughs> playing these instruments with like zero feedback over screams and somehow still like playing amazingly together. Was, they were pretty incredible musicians. Um, and my mom told me recently that she saw the Beatles live and I was like, how have we never talked about this? That's amazing. <laughs> That's crazy. That is crazy. I mean, the ability to have been there in this era to have seen them live now. I mean, I wonder if you knew what a major deal that was going to end up being. You, I mean, there was no way, right? Apparently, she didn't like the Beatles very much. Oh my god, that's which really funny. seems insane. That seems insane. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, I mean, no, she liked him as much as you, you know. You can't not like them. But yeah. Anyway, so the they stopped touring. Yep. They moved in this more counterculture direction, and yeah, Revolver was really the. I mean, it's funny because Revolver is like means kind of like it there's an there's a change inherent in the name right like in terms mm -hmm. of revolving um but i feel like this this marked a really big change for the band so i i came to them i came to the beatles much later in life i i, I also my parents had greatest hits records they actually had a bunch of beatles records like full stop vinyl records um although i don't really remember playing them very often 
but they, you know, they listened to those greatest hits compilations when the Beatles one came out, you know, and, and, uh, the, the new unreleased song, uh, free as a bird came out. I remember that being a big moment. There was like I a big documentary on TV. Yeah. Like, and we watched all the documentary. Um, I remember really not liking them. I mean, you know, I was mostly engaging with their pop music, like their early stuff. And, and now I love that stuff. I love help. Help is one of my favorite Beatles records. Um, yeah, you know, I was I was engaging mostly with their older stuff because my parents weren't very interested in their later stuff, um, which seems really crazy to me because then their later stuff is so good. So actually, Eleanor Rigby is the 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 song that made me a Beatles fan. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in like a I, I couldn't find my way in, and then. I was listening to the Beatles one album on, you know, that they, that they bought and Eleanor Rigby came on it. It must've been on that one. Maybe it was on one of the greatest hits ones. Anyway, I was listening to Eleanor Rigby and I thought, well, this is weird. What, what's, what's this song doing? <laughs> and it's just such a cool like vibe, <laughs> you it know, is. like there's like the, those strings and, and, you know, uh, it just sounded like nothing else I'd heard from them. And so it opened my eyes to, well, maybe there's a lot more here that I can find for myself that will separate them from just being this band that my parents love and every grown up I know is obsessed with. Um, I actually, I like revolver revolver is one of the first records I got into. I, I wouldn't put it in my top. Maybe I put it in my top five. Now I certainly, the white album and Abbey road mm. are kind of my, my Beatles records that, that oh, I'll, so I'll go to bat for, but I didn't actually do a like real uh, Beatles tour until I was an adult. Like I was in my early twenties. Um, it's right after I got married. My my father in law was a huge Beatles fan. He was challenging me to revisit the catalog, and so I I, I used to write a blog <laughs> uh, called The Word on the Street, and I I did a series on the Beatles records where I, I I really listened to them like several times on headphones and then blogged about that experience. And during that process, became a huge Beatles fan and and immediately got like, oh, I see, I see what I got wrong here. <laughs> uh, that yeah. this is a a I get all of the reasons why they have influenced so much of popular culture and so much of pop music uh, going forward. And, and, you know, I've heard kind of some revisionist history around how influential are they? Are there some other bands that are more influential? Oh, that's garbage. The Beatles are it. Like the Beatles are responsible (laughs) for modern music landscape. (laughs) Um, Maybe not by themselves, but they are largely responsible for it. Right. Whew, they are a good band. There is not a bad song in their catalog. <laughs> There's even their worst songs right? are just like a little too syrupy for me, but they are incredibly consistent. And I think the thing that really floored me was what a short time frame all of this happened in. Have you ever that's looked at I'm the saying. Beatles timeline? It was insane. Isn't it like, like 63 to 69 and then that's it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. so short. Uh is it that short? Is it 63 to 69? That's crazy. That's such a short period to become the greatest band in history and to release just record after record that will that own a place in every top albums of all time list. That's nuts. <laughs> right? No, it was that. So the Let It Be came out in May 1970. Okay. And then the Please Please Me album, March 22nd, 1963. Wow. It was a great band. It was a moment in time. I think that's the thing I most would like to experience is the moment in time. If I was able to time warp to 66, just to experience Beatles mania and understand like in real time what this meant to the culture and how people were engaging with this. 
I do think that Taylor Swift and some of those artists are the best modern day analogs, as best as I can tell from these documentaries of people just yeah. being insane, like insanely obsessed um, with these, these four gentlemen. And I, I think it'd be so cool to be able to be there and, and to feel the electricity around each one of these releases and anticipating them and, and following along with all of their movement. Yeah. Um, it'd be wild. It'd be so cool to to get to do that in real time because it, it all feels like just part of the fabric now of America. Like I, I, I think a world history this or a very British history, band is part of the right. fabric of America. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think of, I think of, you know, all the Vietnam stuff that happened and, and, and they are right in the middle of that, not necessarily by their own protests, but just by how they influenced music and culture and the way that they dressed and the way that they engaged with world worldly things yeah. and, and whatever else. So being in the middle of that, taking your time warp to 66 would be pretty cool, uh, especially for this record that is such a departure and people still went gaga. Yeah. Can we just take a side note? And, and this is going to be the last thing we can talk about the Beatles. But do you ever go back and look at like, pictures of them in 63, 64 and think the, these were the guys that were teen heartthrobs? <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, okay, okay. I mean, I guess, I guess I see it if I like wink my, if I like close my left eye and I look like kind of hard enough. I'm like, compared, compared to like modern standards, I guess, when you think about a, like a teen heartthrob, you're like, really? Paul McCartney was it? All right. I don't okay. know, man. Have you seen, have you said Ed Sheeran? Like, some of these, <laughs> some of these teen heartthrobs today. Does I'm Ed like, Sheeran, yeah. is that, does he count in that category now? I think is that, so. I, isn't I he? guess. I don't know. I mean, I guess his music is kind of in that range, but like in terms of like who's going to have a poster of someone up on their wall? I mean, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. maybe that's Harry Styles and not maybe. Ed Sheeran, but yeah, Harry Styles, <laughs> I could definitely see, but like John Lennon, you know what I, I think, mean? Where I think I'm like, that the music what? penetrates, man. I think that, I mean, this is whatever. I think that the music creates the attraction, you know? Like, yeah, I don't know that these true. four guys walk down the road and you spot them and like fall in love. I that's think it's fair. that you have so deeply invested in the music and, and in having, you know, um, you know, attached it to your, to your identity uh, that these guys being the people who created it or sang it or whatever else. That's fair. I can, I there. can, I understand that because I've experienced that myself. <laughs> uh, my pick for taking a time warp to 1966 is Nina Simone's Wild is the Wind. How much do you know about Nina Simone? There's an album called uh, Nina, Nina Simone Sings the Blues that I have run into the ground because <laughs> it is so yeah. fun and beautiful and sad and like, again, full gamut of emotions. I love her as a protest artist. I think she's iconic. Um, but I'm not, I did not uh, specifically did this album spend a lot of time with it until you kind of flagged it as your pick. So tell me about it. And I would say that this album being my pick is more of a placeholder for wanting to go back and experience Nina Simone uh, in this specific time period because I think it would be so exciting and so electric. There's actually an, mm. an album that came out this year um, that is a live recording of her at the Newport Jazz Festival called You've Got to Learn, uh, and it's recorded oh, yes. in 1966. I remember this. And that record, I think, better encompasses why I'm choosing Nina Simone today because what I want to do is get in my DeLorean and show up in her audience and experience the power of her voice 
and the electricity that I imagine coming like an X-Men hero oh. coming from her fingertips. Oh uh, yeah. She is just a tsunami of a, of a singer and a tsunami of an artist. And, and I find that when I sit and take in Nina Simone, it hits me on a level that's deeper than other artists that I've ever listened to. I think that she is one of the most powerful, um, provocative, amazing musicians who's ever recorded and, and getting to know her through each of these records. She has such a wide range of styles and things that she's bringing to the table. She's a classically trained musician. Um, you know, she was enrolled in Juilliard until, until money ran out. She was denied admission to a prestigious school in Philadelphia, apparently despite a, a stellar audition that she always attributed to racism. You know, she gets her start playing nightclubs in Atlantic city in the mid fifties. And she's told that she has to sing, you know, if she's going to play jazz standards and sing in Atlantic city or being in Atlantic city, she's got to sing too. So she starts singing. Uh, and she just puts out album after album uh, of really wonderful, beautiful music. But then something shifts in this period of like 64 to 67. She, she switches labels and she begins to more overtly use her music for app for activism. And so yeah. when you listen to things like Pastel Blues, which is probably my favorite Nina Simone record, if I had to choose one, uh, I put a spell on you, let it all out, High Priestess of Soul. All of those records from this Phillips record period are, are filled with uh, different, different sides of Nina and different styles that she's bringing to the table. And I think her mastery over all of them allowed her to create something that was, that was so unique uh, amongst any artist who's ever recorded mm -hmm. um, because she can shift from, you know, a jazz standard to a deeply felt um, classical uh, or classically tinged piece um, very quickly. And it all hangs together because she's always bringing all of herself to each of these records. And this record specifically, which is released right in the middle of that, it, it's, it's certainly one of her greatest. Um, it has songs like black is the color of my true love's hair and, and break down and let it all out. And either way I lose that are, you know, just full of all of this lightning in a bottle thing that I'm talking about, but there's two songs on this record that I wanted to name. One is Lilac Wine. So my first experience with Nina Simone is listening to Jeff Buckley's cover of Lilac Wine on his album Grace. Lilac wine is sweet and heady. Uh, and I, you know, as a, Jeff Buckley was one of those artists that like taught me how to listen to music in a new way to like be open to having deeply felt emotions come out through music uh, and finding out that he was covering Nina Simone. I went to my library and I grabbed a copy of, you know, uh, wild is the wind because it has lilac wine on it. And it sounds essentially the same <laughs> except for she's Nina Simone. <laughs> so it's even more powerful. Lilac wine is He didn't change much in his cover. You know, even some of the inflections he chooses are similar to the inflections that she chooses. And it's such a beautiful, powerful song. When I listen to it, I'm almost moved to tears. Even now, even you know, 20, 30 years later mm. of living with that song, because I just hear this like desperation and 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 soulfulness in her voice uh, as she sings those songs. And I'm excited to play a clip of it here. Uh, because I think you can get just a, a tinge of it. Like my love. 
listen to me. And then there's another song called Four Women, uh, where she is, this is a piece that she wrote herself, where she is uh, using four verses to describe four different women in the African-American community. And uh, she kind of moves between each one of them and gives them names and, and talks about how they move in the world. And the names she gives, like Sophonia or Aunt Sarah, sounds so like robust and huge. And she ends the song with a character named Peaches. And when she sings, my name is Peaches, <laughs> it sounds like, oh, this shouldn't work. Like, my name is Peaches is <laughs> yeah. not a sentence Just I would expect it to hear being belted out. But when she belts out, my name is Peaches, I'm like blown away. Like I feel like I am just moved to do something. I don't even know what, but I'm moved to do something because uh, Nina Simone's power uh, in her voice as she does anything uh, is just so crazy. My name is Peaches. There's a song on a live album of hers called Emergency Ward. The song is Isn't It a Pity. It's like a 10-minute song, just her and a piano. And if it isn't the most moving piece of music ever created, I don't know what is. Like, I defy you to find one that's more moving. <laughs> Isn't it a pity You don't know what I'm talking about yet, but I'm going to tell you soon. It's a pity. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, first engaging with Cinnerman, uh on uh, an episode of Scrubs and being like, Ooh, what's this? I didn't heard this song before. And then going back and discovering it's Nina and listening to Cinder Man over and over again, because there's not a more propulsive song in the world. She is just an performer and to be able to sit in her audience and, 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 you know, as, as I said, watch, uh, her, you know, even watching like her on YouTube uh, is so wonderful because she's just a full body singer. Like she, you can see her feeling these songs from some deep place in her heart. Yeah. Um, she seems and, like and obsessed. Just, yeah. That's a great word for it. Yeah. Just really obsessed with Nina Simone. Yeah. I hear it. I don't have, I don't have, I have no notes. I agree with all your, <laughs> all your points. I love Nina Simone. I think that, did you know that she recorded 10 albums between 1964 and 1967? That's crazy. Um, some were live, and some were studio. I know. And every single one is insane. Um, and she may be the most influential, like under the radar influential mm. artist that I can think of. Where it's like, yeah, we know everyone was influenced by Dylan. We know everyone was influenced by the Beatles. <laughs> but I think that... Nina Simone is like up there in terms yeah. of influence, like over years and years and years. And I don't think she gets as much credit as the white dudes in the other corner. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course, sure. you know, there's for probably sure. a lot of lot going on with that. But in terms of her artistry, her sheer artistry, her performance capability, her ability to just like infuse emotion into her music and like, to your point, just feel possessed and feel like, Oh my God, like I could watch I could watch you do this for hours. Unparalleled. I think it's a really special artist that can can make you understand or appreciate something about their lived experience that is so different from your own. You know, like I am not a black woman in the 60s. Uh 
And I wouldn't begin to say that I can appreciate. <laughs> I wouldn't re- <laughs> begin to say that I can appreciate what it's like to be a black woman in the '60s. But listening to Nina, I feel like I'm walking in her shoes. Like I feel like I get to at least understand the emotions and, and the the joy and the pain and the you know the I guess fear maybe is one word or the anger. Like I can just yeah. hear all of it coming through so clearly. Uh, and I'm just so grateful for those types of experiences because I think they get me out of my own kind of like world centered on Dave Sandel experience and let me understand the plights that other people are going through and the things yeah. that are worth kind of lending your time or your influence to, to change and shift in, in our world in 2023. Yeah. It really gets me out of my world centered on Dave Sandel too. So we have yeah. that in common. <laughs> Hey, man, uh, this is great. Uh, are you putting Revolver into your canon? I think that you know it is, Dave. I mean, yeah. is it? Where would you, if you had to like kind of, I know you don't have an obsessive ranking. Is this <laughs> a very important record for you? I'm mostly, you know, like where would this sit in like a top 20 or top 100 of Caleb? Oh, yeah, at least top 20, maybe top, maybe top 25. Let's, uh, again, if we... In in theory, if I am ranking my top hundred albums of all time, I cannot see how Revolver is not in the top twenty five at least. Um, my, my new secret mission is to kind of make you rank things every episode so that I can <laughs> compile your rankings by the end of this. Exactly, you're like taking notes, and you're going to tell me back in the day. No, 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 wait. You said that this album was the. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, no, I mean it's. I, it is extremely hard for me. You'll appreciate that. It's extremely hard for me to separate out Revolver's influence on me from Revolver's influence on everything. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like where it's like, Absolutely. am I putting it up in the top 20 because I think it's supposed to be there or because it's actually there for me? Mm. But I think, especially with Revolver and probably like more so than the other Beatles albums, which I think I can more, more say that I like, I love them, but. I probably don't listen to them as much. I think the repeatability of how much I've listened to Revolver over the years puts it in the top 25 for me. Nice. Uh, Nina Simone's Wild as Wind, probably not in my canon. Uh, Pastel Blues would be. Um, potentially Emergency War, that live album I talked about earlier, that might be in there. Um, uh, again, I would have picked those albums. You know, I would have picked those albums if we were doing a different year. Uh, but this is a really lovely year, and this is a great album. You should Pitchfork, I think, put it very high on their like 500 greatest albums of the of the 60s, uh, or however many albums they rank 200. Uh, it's a really great album, worth all of your time. Go seek it out. It's got a lot of ballads and, and love songs, and uh, it's just a, a lovely record to spend an evening with. Yeah, um, but. Uh, that's Nina. Nina is in my canon. Not sure about yeah, this album. A hundred percent. Yeah. Same yeah. for me. I'm like, just put all of Nina in my canon. I don't know. <laughs> she just Nina's like one thing. of those people from the sixties. Like, yeah, I love your artistry, but also can we just be friends? Can I, can we just hang out? <laughs> Cause I feel like you would be so much fun to like, just drink into the night with, you know, like I just like, <laughs> you know, like just yeah. tell me stories all day long. Uh, what do you listen to this week? Actually, can I talk first about what I'm listening to this week? Because we need to talk. I'll allow it. So all year long, avid listeners of the Best Album 4 podcast know that the album that I've been most excited about all year is Roy's and Murphy's Hit Parade, produced by my very special connection, DJ Cozy. Did I ever disappoint you? Did I disappoint you? 
get it wrong? Did I get it wrong? And right before this record was released, she went and said some pretty unfortunate things about trans kids specifically. Um, I think that uh, if I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt or, or giving her the most benevolent reading of her comments, I'd like to think that her comments were meant more towards anti-big pharma than anti-trans kids. Uh, but she hurt a lot of people with her comments. And when she was given the chance to clarify or apologize, she chose not to. <laughs> she chose to kind of, you know, apologize for the hurt, uh, but not apologize for speaking, you know, for the words and, and, and certainly uh, was not, you know, agreeing to do better or uh, searching for a way to learn and grow from this experience instead just choosing to kind of bow out and stop talking about it, um, which celebrities is the dumbest way to approach these things. When it you're really called is. out, it's because you said something stupid and, and half-baked probably. And, you know, this is your chance to learn. I feel like if these celebrities would just like own it and say, man, I got this way wrong. Um, I can't believe how much I've hurt people with this. I'm, you know, I'm really listening and I'm so sorry. I feel like we could all be sitting here celebrating this new album because Caleb, this new album is freaking awesome. Like front to back, easily my favorite thing I've heard this year. One of my favorite records I've heard in years. Every single song is is just jam-packed with like these DJ Cozy touches that I eat up. Uh, her voice is so wonderful. The thing they created, um, the way that he uses her voice is as much as a Cozy album as a, as a Royce and Murphy album. And and so I just can't like live in a world where it's canceled and I can't talk about it. But also, <laughs> it's su- such a bummer that I can't like just full-throatedly celebrate it because I have so many trans friends and I get why they are pissed, you know, and I get, and I, and I think that what she said was stupid. And so I'm just so bummed because here I am recommending everybody run out and listen to hit parade by Royce and Murphy because man, it lived up to all of my hype and all of my expectations. And uh, I'm so frustrated with her and so angry about this whole situation because uh, I guess because I'm approaching it as a DJ cozy fan first, not as a Royce and Murphy fan, it feels easy to engage with. I don't feel that same hurt uh, uh, because to me, this is a DJ cozy record that she's singing on. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> you know, and so I'm, I'm probably approaching it from a very different place uh, as people who love her and were, you know, consider her one of their very favorite artists. So, uh, but, so I don't know, I guess I'm here recommending it because it's great. It's great music. I hope that in time we can just approach it as great music and, and I can, I can full throatedly endorse it, but I get why right now it's tough. Uh, and this is one of those like uh, she stepped in something, and um, I, I'm I respect why people are super uh, angry. Yeah, I mean it's what it, a bummer, man. <laughs> number one rule should just be celebrities should not be allowed to have public opinions. Like if you were just yeah. there's a reason why um, Taylor Swift. Beyonce, like some of the most mega, mega, mega stars out there have been able to be mega stars for so long that they're very, very careful about the public statements they make in almost any forum. Yeah. Just understanding that, like who they are, who they represent, who their people are, they will make, don't get me wrong, they will make political statements. They will like say things that are quote unquote controversial, but but they're thoughtful. They're they pick and choose, you know, the things that they really care about that they want to speak out on. One of the lessons of the X era, the Elon Musk owned X era, 
is that giving people more of a voice, not always a good thing, especially if you're a beloved celebrity. Yeah, this was a, a comment made on a private Facebook, you know, uh, it was a private Facebook situation that one of her friends apparently took a screenshot of and, and published for the world. Not that that makes it any better. Um, I do appreciate yeah, that she wasn't they, spouting off on might Twitter. Might make it worse. I mean, <laughs> well, no, that's it was fair. like meant that's to be fair. private, right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes this one especially tricky is that the the people who probably she would consider her audience are in in large parts uh, queer, the queer community, and so for her to make comments that are in any shape anti the queer community is just really surprising <laughs> like, yeah. why, why why would you do this why would you why do you think that in the first place? anyway yeah uh, i guess we can move on i mean i think the more controversial thing honestly dave is that i listened to this record and i thought it was only okay yeah well don't that's kill fine. me don't kill you me you get to be wrong from time to time <laughs> this is i Dave's wanted to talk I, see, I want to talk to you about the actual merits of the album and it got subsumed <laughs> into this stupid controversy <laughs> Anyway, but we can we can talk about the actual music at some point. Listen, we're going to revisit it on the end of the year list because I can't not have it on my end of the year That's list. True. We can have a deep debate about it then. And you can have an asterisk on it then, yeah. too. Yeah, we can just uh, talk about the music at that point. Yeah. Uh, I'm bummed to hear that you, that you weren't as into it as me, but I, I'm not surprised, to be honest, yeah. that you weren't. I mean, there are songs on here I really love, but in terms of it being like, you know, front to back for me, definitely not as much. Um, yeah. But anyway, we can talk about that another time. I'm I'm listening to the new James Blake playing Robots into Heaven. Just just really loving it. It's it's more like it's weird to say it's more experimental because James Blake's always been a little electronic experimental, but it does feel a little bit more electronic this time around, right? For sure. Um, yeah, he's back to his roots. Yeah, like there's some things I really love. Like Loading is maybe one of my favorite songs of the year. It's so good. <laughs> just just quirky and fun and and i'm gonna have that on repeat for a long time i'm also i think mandated to listen to the new olivia rodrigo has been playing in my house because my wife really loves it and she and a good friend of hers spent a day when it came out driving around the city listening to it and singing along with them i thought so too i was like why have this is a brilliant why have dave and i never done this seems insane (laughs) Um, so been listening to that a lot. I am obviously obsessed with Olivia Rodrigo's new album. It's so good front to back. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, James Blake, just going back to that for a minute. There's a lot of burial in there, like a lot of burial type sounds. Yeah, uh, totally. And I'm like super into this. This is a, this is a nice, he, he actually doesn't sing on a lot of these tracks. Like this is a, very that's what I'm saying. Record. Yeah. Very electronic. Uh, it's, it's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, but we have to circle back to Olivia Rodrigo, and I need to ask, did you see yeah, what I was sending you about her touring with the Breeders? So, yeah, she's touring with the Breeders, not in Chicago, of course. She's not. She's course got not. somebody else in Chicago. Uh, but I'm hopeful that the Breeders, who are playing later today, uh, I'm hopeful that this like, catapults the Breeders in some new level of stardom, and they just start touring all the time, and people rediscover. <laughs> so you're actually uh, just hoping to be able to see the Kim Breeders Dale. now that Olivia Rodrigo put them up you know, on a pedestal. I find myself being fine with people's enhanced celebrity because of their association with T 
you know, artists like Phoebe Bridgers and Taylor Swift. Uh, so if if the breeders become more popular, uh, I mean, they they are in my mind. Kim Deal is one of the most important singer songwriter musicians of the last thirty years, and they never get their due. And so anything that that catapults them, I'm I'm totally yeah. fine with. I mean, I gotta wonder how this match was made, and the only way I can think about it, just knowing what I know about Olivia Rodrigo, is that she like handpicked them and said, "Hey, can I can I tour with the Breeders? That'd be awesome." You know, like I could actually <laughs> I mean, this see record, her doing that. This record is very '90s heavy. Like, there's a lot of Avril Lavigne, a lot of like uh, Alanis Morissette. There's a lot of, you know, this is a really very pop punk record uh, front to back, and so uh, there's a whole lot of you know uh, the Breeders in this. You know, yeah. I don't think she reaches the height of of anything on on last splash necessarily but uh there is uh, i can certainly imagine her being somebody who uh has played the breeders catalog front to back multiple yeah. times she uh she's she's named Atlantis and some of those other 90s like female rocks as a big uh influence so not surprised yeah, man, she's the best all right there's so much other music that was released last week but I'm gonna i know some right of it for future <laughs> There's a Chemical Brothers record that came out that's as good as anything they've done since the 90s. So I'm going to hold some of this for future recommendations. Uh, but it is a there's a new Mitski album today. There's just a lot of good stuff coming out. Save it for 1967, Dave. <laughs> All right. Uh, let us know, as always, what your pick for best album for uh, getting in your DeLorean moving back to 1966 was. Tell us why Caleb is wrong about Royzen Murphy's record. Um <laughs> And hit us up with any other thoughts and opinions uh, that you have uh, on, uh, well, you know, wherever. Social media, I suppose. Email me. Wherever. Have me in the streets. Carrier pigeon. <laughs> Give me a call. <laughs>